Hello, I'm Cathy Rensenbrink and this is the Bookseller Podcast. Hello and welcome to the sixth edition of the Bookseller Podcast. The Bookseller has been the magazine of the book trade since 1858, reporting on everything from the publication of The Mill on the Floss to the news last week that Murmur by Will Eaves is the winner of the Welcome Prize. The bookseller runs the annual British Book Awards, also known as the Nibbies, because the trophies are in the shape of a pen nib, and they're coming up in a couple of weeks. In this edition, we're talking to Kerry Hudson about her memoir, Low Born. How can we make you feel braver, Kerry? <laughs> Usually about three glasses of wine, does it? <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's not yet five o'clock. And to Alice O'Keefe and Tom Tivenon, who will take us through the big books of May. We'll play out with an audiobook extract of The Farm by Joanne Ramos. Golden Oaks hired women to be surrogates. If you were chosen to be a host, you lived in a luxury house in the middle of the countryside, where your only job was to rest and keep the baby inside you healthy. And we'll be talking to this month's book doctors about which books they'd choose for our patients, eager readers who want to know what to pick up next. First, let me introduce you to this show's contributors and experts. We've got Alice O'Keefe and Tom Tivenham from The Bookseller. Hello. Hello. And with me, as he is every month, is The Bookseller's chief exec, Nigel Roby. Hi, Cathy. Alice, lovely to have you with us. Tell us about what's happening in fiction in May. Well, May is a particularly strong month for debuts, Cathy, and I've chosen three to talk to you about today. The first one is The Farm by Joanne Ramos. This is set in America in nearly the present day. I'll come back to that a bit later. It opens with Jane, who is a young immigrant from the Philippines with a tiny four-week-old baby. She is living in a cramped dorm in Queens. She literally rents a bunk and she is very, very short of cash and desperate to sort of find a new life with her baby. And she actually rents the bunk above an older relative who has worked for many, many years as a baby nurse for the ultra-rich in Manhattan. And her aunt tells her about this place called Golden Oaks, which appears to be a luxury retreat in New York State. The job that's open for Jane is to act as a host, which is, in fact, to be a surrogate Mm. and to live in this um, luxury house and be nurtured and nourished and cosseted while she is a surrogate for a wealthy American family. Obviously, it's a very difficult decision to Jane. She'll get an enormous amount of money, which will secure her baby's future, Mm. but she has to live on the farm of the title Golden Oaks uh, for a full nine months. And Golden Oaks is run by somebody called Mei Yu, who uh, as father is Chinese and her mother was American. And she's an entrepreneur, really. She's seen a gap in the market mm. of very wealthy women who wish to outsource the messy, sometimes dangerous business of pregnancy and childbirth and just basically pay somebody else to take care of all of it. Um, This is a real page turner, I thought. It's very nuanced. It's very uh, complex. Jane starts to question really the value of having sort of signed over her life for nine months in order to get this big paycheck at the end. But the cost is that she's separated, of course, from her own baby, who was just four weeks old at the start. What I thought was very interesting about this book, it's about people seeking their version of the American dream and sort of, you know, moving to a new country and achieving a better life for their children. But Everyone has their reasons for behaving the way they do. I think there are no baddies. It's a very sort of Mm. nuanced um, novel. I've seen comparisons to The Handmaid's Tale, and it is similar in the sense of, you know, these are young women's wombs who have been either forcibly uh, used, in the case of The Handmaid's Tale, or rented, effectively, Mm -hmm. um, in this novel, by the wealthy. And it sort of raises questions about who really owns women's bodies. It's about power and inequality and ambition and sacrifice. Um, and I would recommend it very highly. So, I mean, it is a great setup. You feel that the novel delivers on all the promise. Yes, I do. I do. I enjoyed it very much. Great. And I think you're also a fan of The Doll Factory. Yeah, there's a lot of big numbers around this book. It was the 14-way auction. 
for mm. the publisher to acquire it, which is a pretty big number. Rights have been sold in 27 territories and the TV rights have gone as well. This is set in Victorian London in 1850 and uh, the main character is somebody called Iris Whittle who, at the beginning of the novel, is sort of toiling away. I'm sure it's for this dreadful woman called Mrs Salter and she has to sit there and custom paint these dolls and she works with her sister Rose, her twin sister, and Iris has all these dreams about being a, a painter in her own right. And she actually, through a twist of fate, encounters one of the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood who persuades her to model for him. Um, she's very reluctant, but she agrees to do it because he agrees to teach her to paint. Um, and alongside that thread, which is, I guess, about um, Iris's emancipation and wanting to become an artist, Iris has inadvertently attracted the attention of uh, somebody called Silas Reed, who is a taxidermist and we also come to realise is a collector with extremely macabre tastes who becomes obsessed with her. And things take a pretty dark turn, don't yeah, they? Yeah, I must. I mean, I loved it. I think it is difficult when there are lots of numbers about a book mm. because it's very difficult to... You know, I mean, the proof copy itself is telling you mm. that, you know, this is a book that lots of people wanted to publish. Yes. But very quickly, the voice just took me and I raced through it and mm. just found it pure pleasure, very mm. atmospheric. I love books about art. I mm. think they work really, really well. Yes. Um, it's re- really interesting to read all the detail of how, not just the art in the terms of the painting, but Silas is a taxidermist amongst mm. other things. So all these different people in the novel who are pursuing their arts and their crafts in different ways and yes. for different purposes. Yeah. So I think it's very, very clever. Enjoyable. She weaves in real characters, doesn't mm. she, with her own fictional characters. Yeah. And I thought that was done That worked really well. well as well. It reminded me, I don't know if it reminded you, but of John Fowles, The Collector. It reminded me of that very much. Yes. Though, of course, depending on... It's a bit of a spoiler to say it. (laughs) Yeah, it did. And I think it's an intentional nod. And that's Mm. why there is so much about butterflies Mm. threaded all the way through. Um, But yes, do go and read it, everyone. I think Tom's looking intrigued now. Because then you'll be able to to know what we mean. And it is a beautiful production Mm. job. the the cover design is yes. wonderful. It's you a could, stunning jacket. You do feel you could kind of like just stick it on your wall and look at it. Mm. But of course, if you read it, it's much. Mm. There's much more besides. Yes. And what's your third pick? Well, the third debut I'm going to talk to you about is a contemporary story. The author's very young, 26 years old, oh, and God. I'm really quite stunned at her age and the, the sort of maturity of the novel. It's called What Red Was. Uh, the author is Rosie Price. And it's a story about sexual violence and class. The central character is Kate, who's from quite a normal background, I would say. She grew up in Gloucestershire, um, brought up by her mum. And at university, she meets Max and they very quickly become platonic friends. They have a sort of instant bond. Max is from a very different background. He's from a very wealthy family. His mother is a film director, very cultured, lots of money. And they have this beautiful big house in London. And then one night at a party at Max's parents' house, Kate is raped by somebody who is known to the family. I don't want to give away who it is. Mm. But it's a very well done scene, the the rape scene. And the violence is very sort of quiet if you know what I mean Mm. but it's very chilling and you know really really shocking and then the rest of the novel follows brilliantly I thought the sort of ripple effect of rape and how it affects every relationship that Kate has with everybody else and it also explores how she feels the need to sort of protect her friendship with Max It's also a story about, I mentioned about class um, and entitlement and how some people feel just entitled to do what they want. We later hear from the attacker and he really doesn't think that he's done anything wrong. So I would say that this is a very powerful, sadly very topical read and I think it will provoke a lot of discussion with people who read it and I do recommend it very highly. Thank you very much indeed. Tom, take us out of fictional world into the rest of the month's publishing. What's happening It's a a month for midwives in May. (laughs) (laughs) Two of the big books coming out this month are midwives' memoirs. First one is Leah Hazard's Hard Pushed. Great title. (laughs) Yeah. As you can tell by the title, there's a lot of humor in this book. I guess what is happening in the publishing side is that this is sort of the midwife version of Adam Kay's 
This Is Going to Hurt, which was a huge hit about his sort of memoir as a junior doctor. And this is uh, Leah Hazard, who's an American, hooray, uh, who came to Scotland in 1999, worked for a while on television, but after she had her first child, decided to go to be a midwife, which is an amazing change of career. And um, she writes with a lot of humor about life in the maternity ward. It's quite an interesting book. There is humor, but it's very honest, very rage-inducing in some ways because she and her fellow colleagues are fighting against all these budget cuts. And, you know, she goes into the ward some nights and there's eight pregnant women not having a bed, that sort of thing. Mm. It's really good. But it, it's laugh-out-loud funny and I really highly recommend it. Yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. And it is that thing, you think, how has technology served us so badly? Because she finds out that, you know, not just her, lots of the other staff are on antidepressants just to get yeah. them through the long days and nights. And... Again, I think with a lot of these medical memoirs, what you come out of them thinking is that, you know, our medical professionals need to be looked after as well. The yeah, people that yeah. look after us need to be looked after themselves. And certainly as a society, we seem to be failing to do that. There's also an interesting subtext about how midwives have been politicized recently, about how, you know, there's this kind of push and pull between uh, some people say midwives are always pushing for home births. Mm -hmm. And some people say that, oh, midwives are always siding with the doctor. And it's really interesting and she kind of alludes to how midwives throughout the centuries have been accused of being witches because it's a uh, profession solely done by women. And it's really interesting. Yeah. It was, and of course, I mean, the word itself, midwife, but it's predominantly yeah. women, isn't it? And the other one is uh, the memoir of this very amazing woman called Edna Adan Ismail, who is a Somali woman who has been an activist against female genital mutilation. She founded the first maternity hospital in Somaliland. And amazingly, was also Somaliland's health minister and foreign minister just in her spare time and now works with the World Health Organization. But it's just a really inspiring memoir about how she did this and also her own story. She talks about her own FGM, mm -hmm. which is, re oh, well, as you imagine, it's tough to take when you read it, but it's really essential. Mm -hmm. Great. And what else have you got for us? Well, there's common people. Uh -huh. uh, Alice was talking about class. This is an anthology of people from working class backgrounds writing about their lives. I should sort of step back and say that, uh, and I think we've mentioned this on past podcasts, is that the issue of representation is a big one in publishing about people from, as they say, backgrounds normally ignored by publishing. Basically, non-white people from working class backgrounds have not been in the industry or have not been published as much as perhaps they should. And Kit Duvall, the novelist, a couple of years ago did a really great BBC radio program about this very thing about working class and publishing and writing. She edited Common People, and this has people like Mallory Blackman, uh, the YA author, uh, Louise Doughty, the crime author, and someone called um, Kathy Rent. Rensenbrink, uh, <laughs> writing no, about their no, life. I don't think that's how you no, pronounce no. it. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I have uh, an essay about darts in it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and I think, I mean, Kit is such an amazing person that I would, I think I'd probably take a bullet for her. So when she asked me to write an essay for her, that seemed like a, an obvious thing to do. So it does feel a great thing to have been part of the project. And of course, what the other thing in the book is for every published writer, there is an unpublished writer. Yes. So they worked with the eight literature development agencies in the country to find these writers. And then there are also mentoring schemes. So I'm mentoring a very talented woman called Jenny Knight, who's got the extract right. in the book. Hopefully we'll be talking about her memoir here in some time. And I think that sort of action is really important that it's sort of joined up across a few things yeah. so feels like a good deed in a naughty world and the interesting thing about this whole book is that the essays are uh, a celebration of working class life in many ways and it could have been quite po-faced if you know what i mean you know mm. people raging against the machine but it's not it's about who can tell the story and the people who have been brought up in working class backgrounds are just as able to tell great stories as you know middle class white people who went to oxbridge yeah, and I do think um, one of the things I wanted... <laughs> I really wish Tom hadn't been looking at me. <laughs> well, I, really, I really wanted to write about how people get muddled and people conflate class with intelligence. Yeah, so, what, so once you start writing books, people just assume you have a different background. And when I was writing the piece, a friend of mine said, like, but you don't consider yourself as working class anymore, surely, now that you've written books and you go on the radio. It's like, well... Do working class people never get to be successful writers then in that case? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if you achieve any measure of success, does that mean that you then don't belong to yeah, your yeah. class? And what does that say to the kids 
you know, like, because I write in the piece when every time I said I wanted to be a writer growing up, which I did all the time, probably quite boringly, I was just always told that was an impossible, yeah. that was an impossible dream, it wasn't mm-hmm. a possible thing. So that's kind of slightly what I hope, that some of those kids, for, for whatever reason, kids that don't see themselves in books and don't see themselves in publishing are encouraged to think that they can, yeah, that the doors absolutely. are open. Yeah. Let's hope. Yeah. Um, we will be interviewing Kerry Hudson later on about her book, Lowborn, mm. um, in which she also addresses lots of these issues. Mm, that is a brilliant book. I hardly ever get to read nonfiction because I spend all my time reading fiction. But my colleague, Caroline Sanderson, gave it such um, a glowing preview. And then she interviewed her as well for the bookseller. And I have to say, I thought it was so powerful, so moving. She's an amazing woman. If I've got any breath in my body after taking a bullet for Kit, I'll take one for Kerry as well. <laughs> I'm laying out a lot of sacrifice this week. Um, have you got anything else for us, Tom? Yeah, uh, just a quick mention for one more memoir, uh, which is uh, Naturally Tan, which is by Tan Friends, which we all know at this table, is one of the Fab Five from Queer Eye, the Netflix show, which is the uh, reboot of Queer Eye. For the straight guy, which is the makeover show where five gay gentlemen kind of make over a usually schlumpy sort of guy from the American Midwest and turn him into fabulous. Um, Tan. And friend- you are looking very good, John. Yeah. <laughs> well, I-, I have got a lot of tips from Tan Friends. He's the um, fashion guy on the show, but he's the um, only British guy on the program. He's gay, South Asian, and he grew up in South Yorkshire is the only gay in the village, literally. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a really funny, quite touching memoir that I really didn't expect. You know, celebrity memoir can often be quite uh, sugar-coated, shall we say. Um, but this is really good. And I recommend it highly. And kids, there's Malaminder by Thomas Taylor. Thomas Taylor is probably one of the most famous illustrators you can't name because he's the original Harry Potter illustrator. All those classic covers that you remember from the first Harry Potters are from him. He did them straight out of Norwich Art School, so that was a good first job for him. Uh, Malamander is um, his middle grade novel, which is sort of, say, ages 6 to about 12. It's a very spooky story that takes place on a um, town called Mm. (laughs) Erie-on-Sea, narrated by this guy called Herbert Lemon, and it's about this girl called Violet whose parents disappeared 12 years ago, and it may or may not have been because of Malamander, the sea monster that's off the shore. It's really good. This, like uh, Doll Factory, was um, subject of a huge auction. Uh, It's been sold everywhere. It's going to be one of the big hits Mm -hmm. of the year. And my last really favorite kid's book is Grumpy Corn by Sarah McIntyre, which is about a unicorn who's very grumpy, as you can see, uh, who's trying to write a book but he can't because, you know, his tea's not hot enough. The pen that he's using is not fluffy enough. Um, so so he uh, gets all his friends together to try to write this book. I, I imagine Sarah McIntyre must have wrote this while she was blocked or something. Yeah, but it's really, really good. The illustrations are brilliant. I can just feel everyone he wants yeah. to write rushing out to buy a coffee yeah, right now. And, and she really cleverly subverts the whole... Unicorns are really popular in children's literature and for millennials, for some reason. Um, it's because they're great. They're yeah, great. Well, they're quite popular they amongst certain 46-year-old women as well, yeah. I can tell you. <laughs> And, and so she really cleverly subverts the genre. It's really good. Um, and I actually just wanted to add a little picture book, which is just so wonderful. And it's been enriching our lives at home. Like I can't tell you. It's called The Suitcase by Chris Naylor Ballesteros. It's being published ahead of mm. Refugee Week. Yeah, yeah. And it's just a beautiful picture book about kindness and being kind to strangers and not knowing what other people's stories are. And my son's nine now, but it was sent to me and he said he thinks it's the best book he's ever read. And we just share it with everyone who comes to our house mm. and they just sit in our kitchen and they just look through the book and then we have a little chat about it and our lives are made a bit gladder though sadder it's sad but there we go thank you so much thank you chaps for coming in sharing your knowledge with us and we will see you again thank you thanks now it's time to talk to Kerry Hudson. I vividly remember reading the very first line of Kerry's first novel. That was Tony Hogan bought me an ice cream float before he stole my ma and it made the hair stand up on the back of my neck. She wrote another excellent novel called Thirst and she's here today to talk to us about her first work of non-fiction which is called Low Born. Kerry, welcome. Thanks for coming in to see us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Tell me, why did you decide to write this book? 
I guess it was for two reasons. So one was to kind of finish what I started with Tony Hogan bought me an ice cream float before he stole my ma, um, which was enormously autobiographic um, and helped me sort of understand a lot of things about my quite disadvantaged and chaotic childhood. Um, But I felt like I hadn't done enough really to sort of satisfy the questions that I had as a writer about that process. And then the other reason was because we just voted for Brexit. Mm -hmm. Uh, Trump had just got into office. Um, I was seeing a really big rise of sort of divisive language around poverty. And I felt that the thing that I could offer was my personal story. I felt like if I said, this is me, this happened to me, and these are the reasons that these things happen, then it might help uh, shape some people's perceptions of what poverty really is in the UK. Mm -hmm. You say that you are proudly working class, but never proudly poor. Talk to us about that a bit. Yeah, I mean, I think the danger is that if you start talking about the sort of dark places of poverty and let's be honest like there are plenty dark places Mm. (laughs) about not having enough food or not having sustainable shelter or poor educational attainment that it seems that you're sort of ashamed of your background Mm. but I never was I'm very proud of the communities I came from they're strong and tenacious and intelligent and hopeful even when hope shouldn't really be there at all and so I really wanted to look at how I could talk about the very difficult parts of poverty and really why it's so important important that we start tackling it robustly um, but also make sure that people understood that actually those communities have an enormous value to offer the country. You talk about the adverse childhood experiences measure. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so they call it the ACE mm-hmm. measure for short. And it's basically, it's kind of like, if you think of a buzz <laughs> BuzzFeed quiz with really high stakes. So it's got <laughs> yeah. 10 questions which measure childhood trauma. And for each thing that happened to you as a child, you get a point. And the higher your ACE score is, then likely the more trauma that you've experienced. My score was an 8 out of 10, mm-hmm. so pretty high on that score. Um, but for me, actually, it was a really helpful measure because it's hard to measure trauma. It's hard to find a sort of metric for understanding the experiences you've had. And so I found it really helpful. It also helped me understand a lot of the things that then happened to me in my teens and a lot of uh, sort of the consequences of that that I faced in my adulthood. Mm-hmm. Quite a lot of the book is you puzzling out your own story, isn't yes. it? Yes. Yes. I mean, it's, I, I hope it's more interesting. Well, I, I, mean, I found just, it fascinating and riveting. Sort of... I would very happily read about only you for the rest of my life. But, um, and I enjoyed that questing nature of it, that yeah. you, you, the, the, you, the writer in the now with this incredibly successful career, are still dealing with the impact of everything that happened to you all those years ago. Absolutely. And what I realised was that it wasn't just me. Um, At the time of writing Lowborn, I was also writing a series of columns for The Pool. And so I had women contacting me every single month saying, thank you for writing about this because this is how I feel too. Mm -hmm. And so I understood there was value in talking about that uncertainty and that vulnerability. You say that you want to uh, explore some of the falsehoods about poverty. Would you uh, do that for us now? Tell us a bit about that. So part of the book is me sort of reflecting on my childhood and then the other part is me returning to the deprived communities that I grew up in to see how they've changed and also to try and piece together some of my own childhood memories Mm. if you like like a sort of archival process of my own life if you like and I went to speak to social workers who were working in North Lanarkshire they were very experienced they'd all worked in the industry for over 20 years and they said that they felt the poverty shaming uh, sensationalist TV programs like, um, you know, Benefit Street and mm-hmm. stuff like that. They thought the thing that was most responsible for people's change of perception of poor people, because all of a sudden there was this very visible, mass sort of produced form of entertainment, which was about how lazy and stupid and feckless poor people mm-hmm. were. Um, and um, if you're familiar with the report that Philip Alston did, uh, the UN report on UK poverty, mm-hmm. he also says, that the Tory government drove a narrative of propaganda which suggested that poor people were idle and they didn't want to work hard. And that's how they justified a lot of the benefits cuts mm-hmm. um, and sanctions and austerity cuts that they did. So it was structural. And then also, you know, that the media was being made by people who had very little lived experience of poverty. And I just really want to challenge that and show 
the complexities and the nuances and the humanity, mm. which I think is often what's missing from those narratives. And tell us about poverty proofing. Yes. Isn't it fat? Oh, just an just, amazing thing. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> Everyone's picked it out. So yeah. Children Northeast are an amazing organization that tackle child poverty in the Northeast. And they've set up this pilot scheme called Poverty Proofing, where effectively they go into schools and they poverty proof the school day. So they do an audit to see where if you're a poor child and you're uh, self-conscious of what you're wearing or your free school dinners or the school trip you can or can't afford to go on, they will look for ways to alleviate that so that every child has um, the same sort of experience at school. Mm -hmm. So it might be introducing a school uniform. It might be making sure that all school trips are subsidised. One of the things that I talk about in the book is going up to collect my free school dinner token and how deeply shameful I found Mm -hmm. that, even before I understood why it was shameful. Mm -hmm. So eradicating things like that. Um, They did it in my my old school, Het and Lines Primary, which was one of the, the most most sort of restorative, wonderful experience for me as a child, full of teachers who were really committed to helping the children in that area. And when I went back, they just introduced this. Um, And now, actually, my best friend, who's a deputy primary school teacher in London, is trying to implement it in her school. So our hope is that it will start getting rolled out across the country. Oh, that's lovely, isn't it? Now, you say in the book that you're not a brave person. This, to me, feels like an incredibly brave book. How can we make you feel braver, Kerry? <laughs> Usually about three glasses of wine, does it? <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's not yet five o'clock. Um, no, I mean, I suppose when I was writing that I didn't feel brave, I often felt um, frightened. It was a frightening process and it was difficult. But what has been astounding about the book is that I knew that it would change me and help me sort of understand things, both as a writer and as a person. But writing that book was legitimately life-changing for me mm-hmm. and now I do feel stronger and braver and that's what a gift what a gift to be given as a writer it is what do you hope for from the book and from the publication of the book um I suppose I was going to say something really glib like golden shoe because <laughs> 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 it's my it's my instinct just to, to make a joke but um, two things really one is that I would love people who have no perception of what it is like to grow up poor particularly maybe people who are very well intentioned but don't fully understand why those things are happening mm-hmm. or the real depth of difficulty that can come with that sort of poverty um, and give them a new insight into what these communities are going for and also how the sort of society that they exist within and benefit from contributes to that poverty. And then the other thing I would love is for people like me who grew up like me, young women like me, um, to read this book and see their own lives reflected in a compassionate way, Uh, see their own hopes and ideals and bravery reflected in those pages Mm -hmm. there are allies and enemies in the book you know there are people that don't help you and there are people that do help you there's a lot of teachers and they fall into both camps but you did eventually encounter an inspirational teacher that you talk about a lot um, I came to uh, my further education later. I came at like 19 to do a BTEC, which if none of you are familiar with, is kind of like a vocational course for stupid kids. Like That's <laughs> the idea of it. And on that course, it was a performing arts course. There was a teacher called Ian Gordon, who was an ex-actor from Liverpool. I call him the spit of Kirk Douglas. He was this like huge strapping guy. And he just lived and breathed trying to get us kids to believe in ourselves Mm. and also, most importantly, to believe that art belonged to us. So it was meant to be a theatre course, but he exposed us to books and film and music and he managed to find a way to show us how the art was reflective of our lives and how it was really important that we also created art. He was just this extraordinary teacher. He was like a father figure to some of us. He helped me fill out my UCAS and get into university. Otherwise, I don't think I would have been able to do that. Mm. And what's really nice is I'm actually, I'm still in touch with him and his wife. I'm still good friends with them. His ex-students, whenever I say, you know, this is my inspirational teacher, at least five other ex-students chime in and say, I would not be doing what I was without him. He saved my life because that was a course that collected sort of the kids who were not good for anything else. <laughs> and he found a way to to support us and help us forward with our futures. And you were Lady Macbeth in your audition. Piece. I was. I, I'm going to I'm not going to lie. I was, I was a pretty good Lady Macbeth. Yeah. You know, I, I had it. <laughs> and did you do you feel you've washed out the stains? I mean, yeah, I guess like uh, to a certain extent, but also I'm, I'm learning to live with the stains. The stains are totally part of who I am. And actually I'm learning to be kind of proud of them. You know, I wear them 
you know, as a sort of badge of where I've been and, and where I am now. Oh, that's lovely. Thanks so much, Kerry. Thank you so much, Cathy. Take care. Right, now I'm going to hand you over to Nigel to quiz the book doctors. Thanks, Cathy. Our book doctors are two of the best Indies in the country. Just over the Welsh side of the English-Welsh border lies the lovely town of Crickowl, and there you'll find Bookish, owned and run by our guest today, Emma Caulfield-Waters. Her sidekick, 140 miles north, is Sue Porter, whose bookshop Lingham's is in the town of Heswell on the Wirral. Hello both and welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hi Nigel. Hi. Uh, Hello Emma. Now I called you sidekicks and that's right isn't it? Your mates. <laughs> disp- oh yes I can tell your mates. Yeah. <laughs> Despite the distance. So yes. how do you come to know each other? You're 140 miles apart. It's going to be difficult for us not to talk over each other. I, I was just going to say. We, <laughs> <have to talk. laughs> um, we, we met I think at um, the Booksellers Conference for the first time um, which always for us includes quite a bit of wine um, and we found ourselves promising to go to the American Booksellers Conference and then we promised that we would go to Chicago first before Memphis booked a hotel and then thought we actually don't really know each other that well um but we got to know each other very very well over the course of that trip um and it's just been just a joy ever since it's been absolutely wonderful um we try and meet up whenever we can i i pop up to to hesel when i can and sue's coming to see me soon in krakow Krakow, uh, it's just won an award emma i seem to remember what have you won yes oh all the things. Um, we won High Street of the Year um, for the, the Visa Great British High Street Awards back in November, which was absolutely amazing. Um, and I think it's just been wonderful. I've been here since 2010. Such an amazing high street and community to be part of. Um, and it's really everybody's award because the whole town got behind it and supported it. It was lovely for us because I was nominated as High Street Hero because we do lots of High Street stuff here at Bookish. But as I said, it's a whole town award and, and there's so many amazing independent traders uh, along the High Street. It's just brilliant to be part of it. Because what, what I didn't quite get it was, I mean, Crickhall itself, it's only got about 2,000 yeah. people. So so what happens? Do they all read like five books a week or something? Um, well, we're on the A40 so between Oxford and West Wales um, and we're 20 minutes south of Hay on Wye. OK. So um, we get a lot of passing traffic. So lots of people come here and we're right at the gateway to the Brecon Beakers National Park. So it's a bit of a hot spot in terms of lots and lots of visitors. Um, and lots of people seem to have connections to Crickhowl, be it um, coming along to Green Man or um, going up to uh, Hay. Of course, Green Man's there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, Green Man's here. And then there's a big military presence as well. Um, or people come and walk the beacons and, and then never leave. So, yeah, we're, we're in a lucky position, really, in terms of having lots and lots of visitors, but also lots of support. It just seems like everybody's got some kind of connection to Crick, which is lovely. Oh, lovely. And Sue, um, tell us more about the Wirral and, and Lingham's. How do you come to be there? Where is it? Okay, so um, the Wirral is nestled between Chester and Liverpool, and we're just looking over the uh, Welsh mountains. Um, The shop has been around in the village for about 20 years, but I bought it four years ago with my partner, Mike. Uh, I had no background in bookselling at all. In fact, I used to lead a team of investigators into benefit fraud. Oh, God. Where is it? Go for a role change there. Uh, So I inherited a fabulous team, but I had a huge passion for reading. And Heswell's got a a wealth of history behind it as well. It's mentioned in the Doomsday Book. Um, It's got a lot of famous faces who are from Heswell, including John Peel. John Peel. Um, Yes. Fiona Bruce. Oh, really? Uh, Yes. Um, Ian Botham was born there. Um, Andy McCluskey from OMD. And also, Theresa May's in-laws live in Heswell. Oh, yeah, okay. So <laughs> you, you, you started at the top and went down then, okay. Um. And then my, my little bit of useless information. If you've ever seen Coldplay Life in Technicolor 2, the music video, the first um, opening scene, it's filmed at a Heswell village face, which is quite amusing. So, so sorry, Cathy's just in- nodded off at that point. So I think... <laughs> so, 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 so before you get on to any more interesting facts, let's talk about some books instead. So we've got three patients for you two to advise. So the first one is Lisa, and she lives in Edinburgh, and she reads after the kids are in bed. And the last book she read, what did she say here? She said The Miniaturist. Jessie Burton loved it. A lot of people loved it, uh, The Miniaturist. Mm. 
And yeah. the types of books she reads, a bit of everything, nothing too violent and um, nothing too complex, as she's usually knackered <laughs> after reading for the kids. So, and maybe what she's after is maybe some quality historical fiction. She loved that the miniaturist was inspired by a real doll's house in a museum in Amsterdam. So, something a bit like that. Who's going first? Emma, you go first. Oh, go on then. Um, so I was thinking historical fiction, and I wanted to make it a little bit more contemporary. So um, the book that I've chosen is um, Mrs. Hemingway by Naomi Wood. I absolutely loved this. I just found it so, so accessible, but I learned so much, and that's what I loved about it, is it's based on real kind of lives here. So we're looking at Hadley Richardson, Pfeiffer, Martha Gellhorn, and Mary Welsh, and his, Ernest Hemingway's wives, and their lives, how, how their relationships Spanned and started with Hadley Richardson in the 1920s when um, Hemingway was first um, trying to get published. And it kind of tracks that amazing era of the 1920s with the authors of the time, James Joyce, Ezra Pound, Gertrude Stein. And I just found myself on Wikipedia all the time, which I loved. In terms of all of the historical research, I just think it's wonderful and it really made me think it's something that stayed with me for oh I think it was four or five years ago that that I read it and it's still with me and it's something that I still pull out and recommend on a really regular basis and lots of people love it that that's a great choice and and that's something else as well you know often it's the books that are just out but we don't want to you know forget about the books that were four or five years ago there's that side of it and I just thought well it's really interesting now I'm really looking forward to to reading Naomi's next book I enjoyed her last so so well you know so it's nice to be able to say read this and there's something else coming coming out so if you if you like that then you know you've got something to follow it with and what what were you reckoning Sue for for Lisa's recommendation well for Lisa I've sort of looked at the brief and I thought doll and I've come straight up with one that I've just finished the doll factory by Elizabeth McNeil So I've just finished reading it. It's um, Elizabeth is a debut author and it's a historical fast-paced crime fiction and it's set in Victorian England. I thought the characters in this were fantastic. I thought it was a really creepy storyline, but one that you couldn't put down. And I think for a debut author, um, it just blew me away, absolutely blew me away. So I don't think you'll find too many people dissembling here because we actually had earlier in the podcast, we had... um, Alice, our books editor, talking about that self-same book and raving about it. So I, I think you're in. You're, everyone's in good company there. Yeah, uh, and we, we've got Elizabeth for an event later. Oh, fantastic! London, which I can't wait to meet her. I really can't wait to meet her, and I, I just think it's, it's just fabulous. It's so quirky and so different, and I think fans of Jesse Burton are going to love it. Okay, right. Well, we are now going to go down to Cornwall, uh, and we are going to try and find a book or two for Kevin, um, who lives down that way. He just finished uh, Reasons to be Cheerful, Nina Stibby, who I think is uh, a Cornish author, or she's from Cornwall anyway. Kevin mainly reads fiction, and he's wondering about some short stories uh, or a book that he can keep in the car because he has about 20 minutes spare every now and then when he can sort of pick it up and put it down easily. Um, Emma, what did you think on that? Um, I'm not a great short story reader. So I struggled with this one because I was thinking, oh, the last collection of short stories I read was Kiss Kiss by Rodal, um, which is going back to the 50s. So I was thinking, well, what is really accessible with some really beautiful, sparse writing um, and, you know, easily kind of pick up, but downable um, short chapters. And I came up with one of my favourite authors. Um, I absolutely love Kent Haroof who wrote Our Souls at Night. Um, and it was recently adapted for a Netflix film. I just think the writing is just beautiful. It's not fancy. It's a very slim book, which appeals to quite a lot of our customers. Um, But it's just beautiful. The relationship between the two main characters is lovely. Basically, Addie, the main character, knocks on her neighbour's door one evening, and she's lonely, um, in desperate need for company, and just wants to sit and chat and maybe share a bottle of wine. And it just goes through the development of their relationship, life in small-town America, the rumour mills, the assumptions, both from neighbours, um, friends, and also from their families. And I found it very, very emotional. It's a real 
fantastic book about love later in life um and i think it's it really accessible and i think then you can go on to to read kent's other books that were based in a fictional town of holt in colorado benediction being my absolute favorite but i think if you start with our souls at night um you really can't go wrong yeah i've read that and i agree with you it's a lovely choice and and you're right it's it's a nice small one for for kevin to be able to pick up and put down. Sue, what, what are you going to suggest for Kevin? Okay, well, I've gone completely off-piste on this one. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't like short stories either, but I wanted something with fairly short chapters that was punchy and would grab your attention. And because he's only got small time pockets to read, he would really get involved, but then think, I can put it down at the end of the chapter and, and go on with life. So I've chosen Daisy Jones and the Six by Taylor Jenkins Reid. And the story is in the form of a pseudo-documentary, and it it interviews band members of um, the band called The Six, who were a band in the 70s who had an amazing rise to stardom. Two main characters are Daisy Jones, who is a rock chick, she's a wild child, she's hedonistic, and Billy Dunn, who formed the band The Six. The Six is on this huge rise to fame and they've signed massive record deals. They're playing in front of huge stadiums, but there's something missing and that something missing is Daisy Jones. And when they meet each other, there's an intense chemistry. There's massive sparks fly between them and the heat is just coming off the page. However, the band hater and so does Billy. So the whole story is it's the short chapters and you just it's just leading to this huge crescendo for their final concerts and it's just a fascinating inside look at this huge band which it is a fictitious band but you do question that as you're reading it and I thoroughly enjoyed it I think when you haven't got much time on your hands it's something that's great to dip in and out of. I love the sound of that. Um, can you just give us the name of it and the author again? It's Daisy Jones and the Six. And it's by Taylor Jenkins Reid. Well, that's completely and utterly new to me, and I'm gonna, I am going to read it. So, um, uh, <laughs> um, this second. I told you it was um, <laughs> Now, uh, where are we going next? We're going to Leicester, and um, we're going to Samira, who's a teacher. She, like very, very many thousands of people, has just read "This Is Going to Hurt" by Adam Kay, and she's asking, though, this is a tricky one: Is there one similar about teaching? Yes. Oh, is there? <laughs> well, go on then. What is it? <laughs> um, so there's Kate Clenchy's um, new book, Some Kids I Taught and What They Taught Me, which is just out, and is exactly in that vein um, of, of Adam Kay, an honest and very personal account of a teaching career and a celebration of, of teaching and teachers. And it's really passionate and it's looking at teaching as a profession, which we all know, as we kind of knew with the NHS, is often demeaned and diminished and it's so so underfunded and it was a really interesting read for me as the mum of a seven-year-old um, in primary school talking to teachers and trying to be involved with the school in part hilarious as you can imagine from the anecdotes that come out of trying to give 13-year-olds any kind of sex education class um, and yeah I just think it had some real astute arguments in terms of how we educate children how we treat teachers how we approach our children being taught and I just think it's a really really valuable book whether you're a teacher a parent or just generally interested um, as I think we all should be in the education system mm. so yeah I already bought it for several teachers in my son's school yeah. <laughs> just taking it in um, and I know that you know at times they are at their wits end and come through in this book it really does so I, I hope it does for education what Adam Case book did for the NHS in terms of Jeremy Hunt being able to build himself a house out of the copies that he was sent. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We're very political today. We are. are. Great. Love it. Well done. You met Samira's challenge head on. (laughs) So, Sue, this is bound to set you up for a fail. She's jeopardising your chances now. But what are you going to (laughs) suggest? Well, I have just finished a book called Hard Pushed by Leah Hazard. And basically, it's a love letter to midwives. It's very much on par with Adam Kay's book because it talks all about uh, midwives, what they do, how they work ridiculously long hours for not great pay. It's very, very similar to Adam Kay's. Um, And Leah Hazard is um, currently working as a midwife and she mentions several different characters in a book 
about their journey and about the losses of children who unfortunately die in childbirth. Um, she also mentions, as I say, the hours that they work and how one father, uh, this actually really sticks with me this bit, where one father says his wife is really poorly and she's been in labour for 30 odd hours. And he says, where's the cavalry? Why, you know, why is nobody coming in? And then he looks at Leary and goes, actually, you are the cavalry. And she says, yes, I am. And it's just a very powerful book. It's a love letter to midwives and how they're, you know, they're not just a midwife, they're your social worker, they're a best friend, they're the doctor, the nurse in the room with you. And it's just a phenomenal read and one that I would certainly recommend for Samira because it's definitely in line with Adam Kay. This is getting uncanny and we're, we're getting a little <laughs> bit suspicious that you've bugged the podcast studio because that was also a book that was talked about no. earlier on. So, she knows people, doesn't she? Yeah, that's right. So she, you've clearly got the hotline to the bookseller offices. So now, now before we let you get back to your customers, let's get one more book from both of you, the book that you want all of your customers to buy. You're going to lock them in the shop and, until they agree to buy it. So, Emma, what's that book for you, Anne and Crick Owl? Oh, today, um, being in the middle of, of Brecon Beacons National Park, um, also out is Robert McFarlane's Underland. Oh, of course, yeah. Of course. Um, and we are directly opposite Europe's largest cave system. He's just done such amazing um, things for nature writing um, and also um, putting that at the front of people's minds, really, of how they, they view nature and, and the countryside. And for us, it's just perfect. I think we sold about 10 copies already. Really? And um, yeah. it's only what? quarter to three yeah. um so yeah for, for us I although think this even... is podcast time so it could be any time it could be any time yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i mean it's something that it's, it's on our front table it's in our window um it's it's a real no-brainer and it's so beautiful oh isn't it i think it's stanley donwood is the illustrator that he and robert always work together it is such a staggeringly good-looking book and we know what the writing quality is going to be like. Yeah, and the writing quality <laughs> is fantastic. Exactly. Um, and he's such a nice bloke as well. You know, know. It's one of those annoying things. Completely. So, Sue, you can't have Underland, so what are you going to have instead? So, mine came out last year. Um, AJ Pierce, Dear Mrs. Bird. Yeah. Um, I've got it as Book of the Month. I just think it's a real, it's light-hearted, it's superb read, it's fabulous writing, and, it, you know, it's based about, on the Second World War about relationships, during the blitz not knowing what's going to happen around the corner it does make you laugh out loud i mean there's some hilarious lines in it but there's also a serious side because it is the second world war so you will need a hanky but one definitely for the holidays just to relax away sit on a beach and enjoy so yes that's mine dear mrs bird by ajp well that's another good choice um dear mrs bird's been shortlisted for uh, the british book awards book of the year so um a very good choice well listen you've both been fantastic thank you so much and let's hope for decent weather at the weekend i think it's going to be okay and your shops are are flooded with happy readers buying dear mrs bird and, and underland and everything else that you have to offer so thanks a lot, and, and bye. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank See you. ya. Bye Thank now. You, bye. Every time we finish one of our book doctor session, Kathy, I, I always just want to set off on a visit. Why don't you? Just just do it. Go out and visit some indies. Well, may, maybe I should. Maybe <laughs> I'll do that. What a great life. Uh, and to everyone listening, make that your mission for the weekend. Go and find yourself a nice specialist bookshop, one of our great indies or Waterstones or Blackwell's Falls, wherever they sell books. It's a lot more fun than sitting in front of a computer. Indeed it is. And so is going to book events. So we're nearly at the end of the show. But before we say goodbye, let's get out and about. Book Gig is the bookseller's book event listing website. Nigel, tell us what's happening in May. Uh, well, Book Gig, for those who haven't listened to us before, is uh, bookgig.com and it's the booksellers events listing book events where author talks uh, book clubs signings so let me tell you a couple of things that are happening in may kathy sarah crossan is at watson's on tottenham court road in london on the 14th of may talking about her new young adult book toffee uh, bookseller is a big fan of sarah she won our YA book prize in 2016 for her free verse novel about conjoined twins mm. one down at Hay Festival on the 26th, of course, it's Hay coming up. Anna Burns, Man Booker Prize winner Anna Burns with Milkman, 
is talking to Gabby Wood. And right at the end of the month in Lempster on the 31st of May, Alison Weir is at Grange Court in an event put on by Rosseter Books. Uh, Rosseter are one of our favourite indies on the borders there. And she's talking about Anna of Cleve, which is the fourth in her Six Tudor Queens series. Now, I think I'm right in thinking, I haven't got this here, but the Doll Factory, I'm sure I saw that on bookgig.com. So have a search online for that. There's hundreds more on bookgig.com, including uh, quite a lot by you, Cathy. I am out and about a lot in May. I've just been in Chipping Norton and Chiddington Castle, and then I'm interviewing Patrick Gale at Foy, Jim Al-Khalili in Bath. I'm also interviewing Candice Carty-Williams on her wonderful novel, Queenie. It often gets mentioned on this podcast because we're big fans, alongside Hannah Beckerman, who was our podcast guest back in February. So that's also at the Bath Festival. Then at the end of the month, Alexander McCall-Smith is coming to Cornwall, and I'm interviewing him in Padstow and in Penzance and in Falmouth. So that'll be a nice little West Country adventure for me. He's a really interesting man and an extremely prolific writer. And he's putting the miles in. I mean, he's Edinburgh-based. So. Very hard-working. I mean, arguably, you could say the hardest-working writer, perhaps. OK, that's so. his, his official title. Yes. The podcast has anointed him. Britain's hardest-working writer. And we will hope to see all our podcast listeners in all of those places. That's it for now. Our next podcast will be a Nibby special in mid-May. Thanks to the book doctors for their picks. Thanks to the readers who sent in their questions. If you'd like to be one of our patients or talk to us about anything, then you can tweet at the bookseller or come to our Facebook page or just email us on podcast at thebookseller.com. We're available on iTunes, so please subscribe. And as you're probably doing right now, you can listen to us at thebookseller.com. We will leave you, as we do every month, with an audio extract from one of our favourite books of this month. So here is a little clip from The Farm by Joanne Ramos. And that will end the sixth edition of the Bookseller Podcast. This has been a heavy entertainment production. I'm Cathy Rensenbrink. Thanks for listening and happy reading. Golden Oaks hired women to be surrogates. If you were chosen to be a host, you lived in a luxury house in the middle of the countryside where your only job was to rest and keep the baby inside you healthy. According to Mrs. Rubio, Golden Oaks' clients were the richest, most important people from all over the world, and for carrying their babies, hosts were paid a great deal of money. I would take this job if I could. The work is easy and the money is big, but I am too old. Ate sighed. How much money do you mean? Jane asked, resting one hand on Amalia's belly so she would not roll off Ate's bed. More money than you made with Mrs. Carter, Ate answered without judgment. And Mrs. Rubio says if the client likes you, you can make much more. Ate pressed a pale gray business card into Jane's hand. On it there was a name, May Yu, and a phone number. Maybe, Jane, it is a new beginning. Applying to Golden Oaks was time-consuming, but not complicated. There were forms to sign. Jane had to agree to a background and credit check and send copies of her citizenship papers. There were rounds of medical examinations at a doctor's office near the East River and a battery of other tests, odd ones, at a smaller office on York. Jane surprised herself by enjoying the latter test, in part because the silver-haired woman who conducted them assured her there were no wrong answers. Jane was first shown a series of splotchy shapes and asked to describe them. The silver-haired woman then asked her questions about what it was like being raised by Nanai and what made her angry. Afterward, Jane took a computer test where she only needed to mark whether she agreed or disagreed with a list of statements. Any trouble you have is your own fault. Jane thought of Billy, of Mrs. Carter, and clicked, Strongly agree. I do many things better than almost everyone I know. At this, Jane laughed aloud. She did not even finish high school. Strongly disagree. I don't mind being told what to do. Agree. Thank you.